My name's Patricia King, and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi, folks. Uh, Chris Rosebeer here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that... Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... For another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, September 18th, 2013. All right. Okay, the next three days, it's, um, I've got a pile and I'm working through it. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There's no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We slow down and stop and compare what God's Word says to what people are saying, and we check it in context and use Greek if we need to. I'll kind of explain that in a minute. Um, and uh, in order to rightly understand uh, whether or not we are being taught the truth by the folks who are teaching us God's word, or if the people who are teaching us God's word don't really know what they're talking about. There's a whole lot of the uh, the type that don't know what they're talking about, and there's a lot of deception going on out there. Now, <clears throat> let me tell you what we're going to do today, what we're going to do tomorrow, and, and on into Friday, if, <laughs> if I have the ability. What we are doing today is, uh, the, the, well... <laughs> Today, tomorrow, and Friday probably don't have themes, and if a theme emerges, it's quite by accident. Let's just put it this way. Normally, uh, here at Fighting for the Faith, every day I have a theme that I work from for each and every episode, and then from time to time we do these uh, potpourri or stinking pot episodes. I'm not going to call this a stinking pot episode. It's just that the pile is so big that of things that uh, I need to get to, and uh, one of the things we need to get to is something I've actually written. Um, but the pile is so big that, you know, it's like a big ginormous burrito and, uh, you know how you eat a burrito? 
uh, one bite at a time. So what? That's what we're gonna do. But th- we we've we've got the crazy, we've got the good, we've got the kind of in between, and then we've got our sermons. And so it's just yeah. The best way to put it is is that you know you just strap in, hang on, and and we'll we'll get at it. So what I'm gonna try to do today, um, yes, yeah, this this is gonna be one of those weird. I get the segues are gonna be weird today. Okay, <clears throat> I've got a, a an article I just wrote. And I want to share that with you. Think of it as a follow-up to the email that we covered last week, talking about how the BBC, the, their scholars for that uh, Codex Sinaiticus, or the Beauty of Books is the name of the uh, uh, of the uh, documentary that they did, and they had a little seven-minute-long snippet that you did on Codex Sinaiticus. Um, but so I pointed out last week that that in that BBC documentary, they were so quick to point out that there's 23,000 corrections in uh, Sinaiticus, okay, without ever taking the time to actually explain what the different types of variants are and uh, and that pretty much 99.8% of the so-called corrections in Sinaiticus have no bearing whatsoever on uh, <clears throat> any meaningful bearing on the meaning of any of these texts. Um, but so I pointed that out last week, but then the other thing is, is that, you know, there's, there's folks who are pointing to, uh, these, you know, this BBC, uh, documentary and, and basically they're kind of shaken in their boots, you know, uh, you know, it's as if Goliath has, has stepped onto the field, you know, it's like, oh, who's going to. Who's going to kill this uncircumcised Philistine? And and rather than taking him on, it, it reminds me of uh, uh, of the uh, movie the the, the uh, Monty Python's The Holy Grail. You know where uh, they end up running away because of the bunny. Yeah, you remember you remember that? You're, hang on a second. Let's see if this sounds familiar. <laughs> Yeah, run away, run away. Yeah, and so the idea is is that what, there's there's folks out there who are pointing to this BBC documentary and how higher critics are quote interpreting uh, Codex Sinaiticus, and the idea is is that that somehow that you know because higher critics have you know they're they're manipulating and misquoting this text that somehow that that means that oh no we better throw out Sinaiticus. Well, I actually spent some time in the text of Sinaiticus. I read Greek, have been reading it for 25 years. And uh, in fact, my major was in religious studies and biblical languages when I was uh, doing my undergraduate. And um, and so I just rolled up my sleeves, got into the, in, into the text of Sinaiticus and did some work in it. And uh, and uh, what I found is is that these arguments that uh, are being used by the BBC are so flimsy that you can actually use Sinaiticus to blow them over. I mean, it, it, it's ridiculous. I mean, um, you know, because you know what I see in Sinaiticus? I see a copy of the Bible, and it's written in Greek. I read Greek. So, you know, the the Bible is called the sword of truth. You know, you, you're familiar with this concept? So I just picked up the sword and wielded it. In, and uh, so I want to read to you an article that I wrote. Uh, you can find it at my Litter of Mark blog. And if you want to see the graphics, you're going to have to view it there. Um, I've got a good um, good uh, article from Tullian Tavigian that was recently uh, published over at the Christianity Today website called God's Word in Two Words, and it's definitely worth passing along. And uh, and then I've got an Albert Muller piece that I want to get to today called Preaching with Authority, Three Characteristics of Expository Preaching. 
And <laughs> with the three good segments that we're doing in hour number one today, you'd think that we'd be doing a good sermon. No. <laughs> no, we're not. Uh, we're <laughs> I <laughs> was previewing the sermon <laughs> that we're going to be reviewing today on my... <clears throat> Uh, on my, uh, I, I, while doing exercise, you know, I'm trying to uh, become half the man that I used to be. So I'm trying to rack up my Nike fuel points for the day and and log my uh, my Nike uh, Nike Plus running app miles. And so I, <laughs> no joke, I was just cracking up. This <laughs> it was it's so bad. It's a Nicole Crank sermon called Just Dance. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it just I'm just telling you it's awful. It's so bad it actually crosses over from jaw droppingly bad into comedy. It, it's it's really that bad. So that's what we're gonna do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I recommend that you make yourself comfortable. Uh, we've got a lot a lot of ground that we need to cover today, and uh, and so you know the, uh, we have no weird updates in the first hour. So just this the first hour will be a weird free zone. Let's just put it that way. At least weird free in the sense that we don't have a Patricia King update today. <laughs> but man, we got one for tomorrow. Uh, we, you know, we don't have a, a Cindy Jacobs update today, but wait to hear the one that we've got either for tomorrow or Friday. We don't have a Chuck Pierce update today. Oh, but wait until. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, it's just one of those things. This is you know, weird stuff that we've got coming up. So, so I thought I would save the weird stuff today for hour number two. But uh, since we're, you know, we're going to be doing, uh, reading an article, and even though I'm the one who wrote it, we still got to do this. From the Letter of Mark blog, you can find this at L-E-T-T-E-R-O-F-M-A-R-Q-U-E dot U-S. I wrote an article entitled, Challenging the BBC's Higher Critics' Misuse of Codex Sinaiticus. And by the way, I won't be able to – some of this stuff you'll have to actually go to the website to see it. So, Challenging the BBC's Higher Critics' Misuse of Codex Sinaiticus. In the conversation that has recently erupted regarding the authenticity and reliability of Codex Sinaiticus, a concern has been raised regarding how higher critics, particularly those featured in a recent BBC documentary, are using this manuscript in order to cast – theological doubt on such core Christian doctrine as Christ's deity and his resurrection appearances. The fear expressed by some, who cannot even read Sinaiticus, is that because these higher critics point to particular features of the Codex as alleged proof to support their hypercritical views in the New Testament, that the manuscript itself is corrupted, that it, and as a result, it's not only unwise to base any modern translations on its text, it's probably harmful to Christian orthodoxy to do so. Now, as someone who has a degree in biblical languages, has been reading the Greek New Testament for 25 years, and is capable of reading Codex Sinaiticus, I will demonstrate that it is not Sinaiticus that is to blame for the fear and confusion that is being spread. Instead, the real uh, culprits, as you will soon see, are the faulty logic and selective misquoting of the Codex by the BBC's higher critics. 
Okay. Now, I've, there's a section heading here called What the BBC's Higher Critics Said About Sinaticus. Now, in order to bring you up to speed, it's necessary for you to listen in this particular case. You could, you could actually watch it on my website, the BBC's short discussion of Codex Sinaiticus. And to help facilitate that, I've embedded the video below. Now, I'm gonna. this is going to seem a little bit redundant because we played a portion of this last week. I'm going to play... I'm going to play it again, so there'll be a little bit of redundancy from playing it last week. But there's a particular quote that I want to get to that uh, that I need to uh, need you to hear in context. So here is audio from the BBC's documentary, The Beauty of Books, and their discussion of Codex Sinaiticus. I'm going to particularly key in on what they do with the with Sinaiticus's copy of the Gospel of Mark. But uh, listen in. Among the most highly prized treasures at the British Library is the largest book to survive from antiquity. The magnificent Codex Sinaiticus contains the oldest complete New Testament in the world. Within it lie surprising challenges to Christian orthodoxy. Did you hear that? Within it lie surprising challenges to Christian orthodoxy. Um, nuh-uh. <laughs> and I prove that in this article. And a unique insight into the religion's early history. This volume is the oldest surviving copy of the New Testament, complete. This is the ancestor of all the Bibles that everybody else has in the world. The Codex Sinaiticus acquired its name because it was kept for nearly a thousand years in the remote monastery of St. Catherine's on Mount Sinai. It remained there until the German biblical scholar Constantine von Tischendorf visited the monastery in the mid-1800s. When he was shown the Codex Sinaiticus, Tischendorf recognized its enormous significance. Here was a manuscript that offered unique insights into scripture and which made scholars reevaluate the Bible that Victorian Christians had relied on. The King James Bible sturdy and black on the shelves, was was thought to be perfect, inerrant by many people across the English-speaking world, which was mostly Bible-believing Protestants. But the fact of the matter was that scholars had known that the translations were all based on rather shaky evidence, shaky texts. So this is what drove von Tischendorf to go and search across the ancient scriptoria, as they were called, of the East and to discover this spectacular Bible. But beyond its bookmaking craft and scribal elegance lies a complicated story. On closer inspection, the text of the Codex Sinaiticus is littered with revisions which have intrigued scholars for centuries. It is history's most altered biblical manuscript, and within those changes lie its real theological secrets. It has approximately 23,000 corrections in all that survives, which is an extraordinary rate of correction. It means that there, on average there are about 30 corrections on each page. Now I'll pause there for a second. Just a reminder, the September 9th episode, uh, 2013, September 9th, 2013 episode of Fighting for the Faith. So last week I discussed this uh, and I uh, employed the help 
of uh, Dr. Dan Wallace to explain variants and what types of variances are meaningful and viable and all that kind of stuff in order to dispel, oh no, 23,000. Yeah, listen, it's... (laughs) If you've worked with the Sinaiticus text, it really isn't that big of a deal. But we continue. So you've got DK, which has been changed to Dikai. Additions there and there. And then obviously you've got a larger addition there. Zacharias, the son of Barachios. Given the quality of the calligraphy, scholars were surprised to find so many changes. Many scribes wrote for money. They wrote quickly, which meant they sometimes made errors. But 23,000 corrections can't be explained in this way. There have to be theological reasons, too. Okay, now this is the important part. So apparently 23,000 corrections. This can't just be explained by scribal error. It must, there must be theological reasons behind it. Uh Uh-uh. I prove that, but let's continue. Have people, individuals, agreeing, disagreeing about what is the biblical text. There are passages which were originally copied by the scribes. Then you get a corrector comes along and he doesn't delete them. He puts little dots underneath the letters that you don't think are part of the text. So you've effectively saying no, no to that part of the text. You can sort of hear the voices from this ancient world. A really remarkable change occurs at the beginning of Mark's gospel. Now listen really carefully. This is the part we're going to key in on right here. Today's Mark starts with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But the original Codex Sinaiticus didn't have Son of God. Someone added it later. Just gasp. Here, in Greek, you have... The Son of God, Huiu Theu. This is highly significant because in the earlier version, Jesus became divine only after his baptism by John the Baptist. The edited insertion makes Jesus divine at birth. Does it? No way! Some 19th century readers would have been shocked by the idea that Mark did not share that belief. All right, now that's the part I'm going to key in on on their claims regarding the changes in Sinaiticus to the Gospel of Mark, and that apparently the earliest copies of Mark do not believe that Jesus was divine at birth. Oh, no. Yeah, Yeah, this is what we would call a pack of liberal lies, but let me continue reading my article. This article, in this article, I will answer the question, does Codex Sinaiticus teach that Jesus wasn't the Son of God until he was baptized? That's what I'm going to cover. Now, I'm, we're currently working on a follow-up article for this. Probably will not be out until next week, but it says in my follow-up article, I will answer the question, does Codex Sinaiticus deny that Jesus rose bodily from the grave by omitting the resurrection appearances of Jesus? This will be uh, part two, but that's next week. So, today's question, does Codex Sinaiticus teach that Jesus wasn't the Son of God until he was baptized? Well, here's the relevant quote from the BBC's documentary that I will be focused on in this article. Quote, today's mark begins with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, but the original Codex Sinaiticus didn't have Son of God. Someone added it later. This is highly significant because in the earlier version, Jesus became divine only after his baptism by John the Baptist. The edited insertion makes Jesus divine at birth. 
Some 19th century readers would have been shocked that Mark did not share that belief, unquote. So that's the quote I'm going to be uh, working from. So I ask the question, is it true that Codex Sinaiticus's version of Mark omits the words son of God and that because of that, Mark didn't believe that Jesus was divine at birth? Well, the claim put forward by the higher critics featured in the BBC's documentary, although <clears throat> you can tell they were working behind the, the scenes writing the narration here. <clears throat> this is a classic example of a tiny little bit of truth being mixed with some huge inaccuracies. It is true that within the main body of the text of Codex Sinaiticus that the words Son of God are omitted in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. It is also true that there is a correction within the text that reinserts the words Son of God. This is a well-known variant within the text of Codex Sinaiticus. What is patently false and scholastically indefensible is the outrageous conclusion that Mark didn't believe Jesus was divine until his baptism. This is a criminal twisting of facts intentionally designed to prop up the preposterous claim that the early Christians didn't believe Jesus was divine until his baptism, which, by the way, is one of the Gnostic teachings. <clears throat> That's a side note, though. The odd thing is that the BBC's higher critics are trying to make Codex Sinaiticus an accomplice in their crime. As you'll see, Codex Sinaiticus doesn't bend to their will and clearly reveals that the earliest Christians believed and taught that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Next section. How to properly understand Sinaiticus's variant at Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Now, in my article, I actually have a photo of the first few verses of the Gospel of Mark from the text of Codex Sinaiticus. You can see it on my blog there. So, <clears throat> you know, you can see the first few Verses, you can see the first two lines, and you can see that Son of God is omitted, and you can see that there's an, an insertion, a correction, Son of God. By the way, notice the, the correction is to insert Son of God, not take it out. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but we continue. So, here's the question. Why were the words Son of God originally omitted and then reinserted in a correction between, uh, between lines 1 and 2 of the manuscript? Well, the late Bruce, Bruce Metzger, who was a formidable textual scholar and wasn't known for being a conservative fundamentalist, he wrote about this variant and offered two plausible explanations. Said Metzger, quote, The absence of Weuthiu, uh, that would be the son of God, in Sinaiticus may be due to an oversight in copying occasioned by the similarity of the endings of the Nomina Sacra. On the other hand, however, there was always a temptation to which copyists often succumb to expand titles and quasi-titles of books. <clears throat> End quote. Here's the idea. Metzger believed the original omission was either due to a simple common scribal error or that the copy of the New Testament that the scribes who penned Sinaiticus were working from didn't have the words weu, theu. If the text the scribes were working from didn't contain the words huiu, theu, Metzger knew that there was no theological significance that could be gleaned from the omission due to the fact that the first line of most, not all, but most ancient manuscripts oftentimes functioned as the title of that work. 
Therefore, Metzger knew that whether or not the original Gospel of Mark contained the words Weu Theu, Son of God, in its title, no honest scholar could claim that Mark believed that Jesus wasn't the Son of God until his baptism because the actual body of the Gospel of Mark doesn't begin until verse 2. The BBC's higher critics either knew this fact and purposely failed to mention it, or weren't aware of the fact and are not real paleographic scholars. Did Bruce Metzger believe, by the way, that the words Theu existed in the original title of the Gospel of Mark? Well, here's what he wrote. Quote, Since the combination of Codex Vaticanus, Codex Bezai, Codex Washington Annus, and other witnesses are in support of Theu, it is extremely strong. It was not thought advisable then to omit the words altogether. In other words, Metzger wasn't comfortable removing the words Huiu Theu from the title of the Gospel of Mark because the evidence for it is, in his own words, extremely strong. Some of our earliest and best manuscripts, most notably Codex Vaticanus, Vaticanus, Codex Bezai, and Codex Washingtonanus, all contain Huiu Theu. The other reason Metzger wasn't comfortable removing the words Weu Theu, Son of God, from the title of the Gospel of Mark is because he knew that it was possible that the omission was due to a common scriber, scribal error known as homeoteluton. The error of th- this error of omission occurs when a scribe paused and then resumed writing but skipped ahead because of the similarity of the endings of lines or words, thus leaving out a passage or a small segment of a text. And so a simple comparison of, of, of Sinaiticus and Vaticanus will demonstrate how easy it would have been to have made this error. Now what I do here, and this you can, I can't demonstrate this on the radio, um, so you have to go to my blog to see this, I created a computerized um, re-rendition, if you would, of the first three lines of the Gospel of Marks uh, from Codex Vaticanus and also from Codex Sinaiticus in order to demonstrate what was going on and demonstrate how <clears throat> Metzger explained that it was possible that the scribe lifted up his eyes, wrote, and then put his eyes back down on the text and ended up skipping two words. I actually have this out there graphically so that you can see it. In other words, you can see how easy it would have been to make this error because what we're dealing with here is an unsealed manuscript, which, as you will notice when you see the uh, graphic, unsealed manuscripts, all the letters are uppercase and all the words are squished together. There is no space between any of the words. It's kind of, you know, it takes a little bit of getting used to reading something like that, by the way. Anyway, we can. I continue though. Uh, this explanation for the omission also means that it's possible that the correction in Sinaiticus at Mark one one could have been made by the original scribe after he noticed his mistake. So after I demonstrate how that error is possible, I also point that out the fact that it's completely within the realm of possibility that the the original scribe is the one who made the correction. So there is no valid reason to conclude that the correction was inserted for theological reasons such as exalting Jesus from being a mere man to ha- to being the divine son of God. By the way, that wouldn't be necessary because as you are about to hear in your case, the text of Sinaiticus clearly affirms Jesus's deity throughout its leaves. There would be no reason whatsoever therefore to engage in theological editing of that sort. 
So, next section is entitled, The Survey of the Text Supporting the Deity of Christ Taken from Codex Sinaiticus. And I begin with Mark chapter 1, verse 11, for a very specific reason, okay? If you remember, the uh, folks over there at the BBC are saying, oh, well, see, the the Gospel of Mark from Codex Sinaiticus, whoever wrote it doesn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God until he was baptized. So, I clear that up really quick here. Here's what I say. I will begin our survey of Sinaiticus by looking at Mark chapter 1, verse 11, the verse that the BBC's higher critics assert teaches that Jesus became divine at his baptism. Here is the text of Sinaiticus. And what I do is I, I take the three lines for that verse from Codex Sinaiticus. I took a snapshot of it and then plugged it right into the blog post right there. Now, the Greek text reads, and there's, a, there's actual correction in there, but I'll read it with the correction. Kaiphone agenata ekto unon su e hahuias mu ha agapetas. My translation, and a voice came out of heaven, you are my son, the beloved. That's what the text there says at uh, Sinaiticus. A voice came out of heaven, you are my son, the beloved. Now the verb in this sentence is a. It is the second person, singular, present, active, indicative form of the verb a me, to be. If, as the BBC's higher critics claim, this text were saying that when Jesus was baptized, he became the Son of God, then the text would not use the verb me. It would instead use the verb ginomai, to become. Rather than saying, su e ha wios mu ha agapetas, you are my beloved, uh, my son the beloved, the text would instead need to say, su geganas ha wios mu ha agapetas, you have become my son the beloved. But the text of Sinaiticus at Mark 1, 11 does not have geganas, it has a. And this proves that the BBC's higher critics are not conveying accurate information about this text and what it says. Mark 1, verse 11, in Sinaiticus, rather than teaching that Jesus became a divine being at his baptism, actually affirms that Jesus was already divine at his birth. And I did that using the Gospel of Mark right there from Codex Sinaiticus. Now... Next passage, John chapter 1, verse 1. There is no clearer passage in the New Testament that teaches that Jesus is the eternal divine Son of God than John 1, 1. Does Codex Sinaiticus' rendering of this text confirm or deny the eternal divinity of Jesus? Let's take a look. The Greek text reads, An arche and halagas kai halagas en prostontheon kai theos en halagas. My translation In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word. Now, I'm sure this passage must prove to be a major embarrassment to the BBC's higher critics because the text of Sinaiticus so clearly and unambiguously teaches that Jesus was already God at the beginning of beginnings. Yet it says it right there in Sinaiticus' rendition of John 1, verse 1. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8, um, this is another one of the clearest passages that teach that Jesus was divine prior to the incarnation. Now, do you think that Sinaiticus affirms or denies Jesus' pre-incarnate deity? Here's the text. Now, I'm not going to read the entire Greek phrase because it's, it's several verses long, and you'll accuse me of speaking in tongues. So instead, I'll just give you my translation from the Greek text of Sinaiticus, and here's how I translated it. 
have this mind in y'all. And by the way, when I translate from the Greek and I run into the second person plural, um, you know, I, I I'll oftentimes translate it as y'all, even though it's not good English, just to get the point that we're dealing with a plural here. Have this mind in y'all, which is in Christ Jesus, who being by nature God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in the form of a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. <clears throat> in this passage... Sinaiticus clearly affirms that Jesus is, by his very nature, God and was God prior to his incarnation. If the story that the BBC's scholars are feeding us were true, then we'd expect to see all sorts of corrections and redactions in this text. But we don't. Why? Because the BBC's higher critics aren't telling us the truth. So here's my conclusion. I could cite many more examples from Codex Sinaiticus that demonstrates that this manuscript clearly and unambiguously affirms Christ's divinity. However, the texts that I've already covered are enough to debunk the claims being made by the BBC's higher critics. Their story is a liberal fiction, and the text of Codex Sinaiticus itself proves it. Rather than reject Sinaiticus, Christians would be wise to learn how to use Sinaiticus to reject the outlandish and absurd claims of liberal higher critics. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Got a couple of other good articles to uh, share with you and pass along this first hour of Fighting for the Faith. Don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Broadcasting from his mother's basement while in a beanbag eating Cheetos. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Flying. They're flying the code orange flag. It's the SSF Audacity. This is our chance, men. This egregious foe has been plaguing the seas for long enough. Two arms! Man the battle stations and hoist the colors! Aye aye, sir. Man the battle stations and hoist the colors! Captain Furtick, sir. 
Enemy ship approaching. They're flying the accursed Cairo flag. It's the HMS Aletheia. Oh dear, that's bad news. We mustn't let them get the better of us. Call it the praise band drummer and man battle station. Aye, aye, sir. You heard the man. Get to work. Come on, let's go. Captain, sir, they're turning to meet us. With this clear weather, we couldn't have had the element of surprise. Well, no matter. We have the wind on our side and our men are ready. We should be pulling up alongside them any minute now. Give me a status report. Sir, the enemy ship has us outgunned by at least three to one. The gunner's mates are reporting that we're running low on gunpowder and half the crew is suffering from Montezuma's revenge. Never fear, my good man, for it says that with God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. If you say so, Captain Furnick. They're now within firing range, Captain. Mr. Smithers, send them a... Hang on, let me do this myself. Send them a warning shot off of their port bow. Fire cannons, I sir! That was merely a warning shot, Captain. They could have very well have hit us. I think they wished for us to surrender to avoid bloodshed. Nonsense! You think we would surrender in our hour of triumph? God has clearly stated that no weapon formed against you will prosper. We can't lose! Let loose the cannons! But, but we're not within silence! If I wanted your opinion, I'd have given it to you. I say, fire! I've never seen a warning shot where they used all their cannons before. The blasted fool shot before he was in range. I can only assume that he means to not surrender. Quickly fire a barrage into the port side while they reload. Aye, aye, sir. Fire the cannons! God on my side. He said this to me, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in the future. Why why aren't we firing our cannons? We've now lost half our cannons due to the last attack. Come on, men. We can't lose. Aye, aye, sir. Are they even trying anymore? By all accounts, I believe they are. Let's pull up alongside and see if we can't reason with them. It would be bad form to slaughter them without mercy. Hello, over there! Go away! We have nothing to say to you! I wanted to negotiate the terms of your surrender. My surrender? It is you who will be surrendering to us. What on earth is he talking about, Captain? Maybe he's suffering from malnutrition and heat stroke? No, I, I think he's serious. Now look here. You're outgunned with no way of winning. We wish to show you mercy. No weapon formed against us will prosper. Why is he quoting the Bible? 
No. A quote would require a context. What he's done is called proof texting. Enough talk, then. Ready, aim, What was that? I couldn't hear you over the sound of your mass being demolished. But, but, uh, no! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Oh, would you look at that? Your rudder is gone, too. <clears throat> It'll be a little difficult for you to sail without it, don't you think? I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Is it me? Or is your ship now sinking? Nah, maybe it is me. The God of Peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. If it's all the same to you, I think we've lost this fight. I surrender. Geronimo! Take me with you. I can't take another minute with this lunatic. Stop it! Stop it right now! All of you come back. We, we, we can't lose. We have... God on our side. We shall prevail. We will. Well, that was surprisingly easy. Makes me wonder how they were even viewed as a threat in the first place. Most inept sailors to ever sail the seven seas. your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Liberal scholars have no conscience. They're more than willing to twist the facts in order to attack God's word. It's called suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send it to post office box 508 
Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Okay, moving along. I don't need to redo the uh, the news music, but I'm going to be reading to you a recent article published in Christianity Today at the at their website called God's Word in Two Words by Tulian Tavigian. By the way, his new book um, yes, that's coming out, it's just absolutely fantastic. Um, but uh, we'll, I'll, I'm going to see if I can get him on the program to uh, interview him regarding his book. Uh, yeah, I got a preview copy of it. So anyway, <clears throat> uh, Tulian writes, he says, Christians often wish that God would speak the way that he used to speak to his people, audibly through burning bushes, dreams, and doves descending from the sky. That way it would seem much easier to discern what he's saying. Today, most Christians agree the main way God speaks to his people is through the Bible. For too many, though, what he says there is a complete mystery, impossible to understand. Well, it doesn't have to be that way. Many people read the Bible as if it were fundamentally about us, our improvement, our life, our victory, our faith, our holiness, our godliness. We treat it like a disconnected series of timeless principles that will give us our best life now if we simply apply them. We read it, in other words, as if it were a heaven-sent self-help manual, a divinely delivered to-do list. But by reading the Bible this way, we, like the two companions on the road to Emmaus, totally miss the point. As Luke 24 shows, it's impossible to read the Bible, study the Bible, even memorize large portions of the Bible and miss the main point of the Bible. In fact, well, in fact, it's not that it's impossible, it's possible. In fact, unless we go to the Bible to see Jesus and his work for us, even devout Bible reading can become fuel for our own self-improvement plans, a source for, uh, for the help we need to conquer today's challenges and take control of our lives. God's goal in speaking to us in the Bible is profound, but not complicated. In fact, we can say that all of God's word comes to us in two words. And if we're going to understand the Bible rightly, we have to be able to distinguish properly between those two words. So, different do job descriptions. The Protestant reformers were all in agreement that all of God's word comes to us in two forms of speech, law and gospel. The law is God's word of demand, and the gospel is God's word of deliverance. The law tells us what to do, while the gospel tells us what God has done. If you pick up your Bible and turn on any page, you're going to find one of two things, either a passage that demands something from you, law, like Honor your father and mother, Exodus 20, verse 12, or a passage that delivers something to you, gospel, like, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Everything in both the Old and New Testaments comes in one of these two forms. Hence, wrote Martin Luther, whoever knows well this art of distinguishing between the law and the gospel, him place at the head and call him a doctor of holy scripture. Now, obviously, both God's law and God's gospel come from God, which means both are good and necessary for us to hear. 
but they do very different things. This distinction may seem irrelevantly abstract, something that would fascinate only the theologian or linguist, but serious life confusion happens when we confuse law and gospel. When we fail to understand their unique job descriptions, John Calvin's protege, Theodore Beza, went so far as to say that, quote, ignorance of this distinction between law and gospel is one of the principal sources of the abuses which corrupted and still corrupt Christianity. And I would agree with Theodore Beza there, unquote. So what are the job descriptions of God's two words? Well, let me answer by way of illustration. My wife and I have three children, Gabe, Nate, and Jenna. In order uh, for us to function as a community of five in our home, rules need to be established. Laws need to be put in place. Our kids know that they can't steal from each other. They have to share the computer since harmonious relationships depend on trust. They can't lie because we have three cars and four drivers. Our sons can't simply announce that they're taking one of the cars. Each has to ask ahead of time. Rules are necessary. By telling them over and over what they can and cannot do, it won't change their hearts or make them want to comply. When one of our kids, typically Jenna, throws a temper tantrum, thereby breaking one of the rules, we can send her to her room and take away some of her privileges. But while this may rightly produce sorrow at the revelation of her sin, it does not have the power to remove her sin. In other words, the law can crush her, but it cannot cure her. It can kill her, but it cannot make her alive. If Kim and I don't follow up with up the law with the gospel, Jenna would be left without hope defeated, but not delivered. In Romans 7, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that the law illuminates sin, but is powerless to eliminate sin. That's not part of its job description. It points to righteousness, but can't produce it. It shows us what godliness is, but it cannot make us godly. The law can inform us of our sin, but it cannot transform the sinner. Only the gospel can do that. As Luther said, sin is not canceled by lawful living, for no person is able to live up to the law. Nothing can take away sin except for the grace of God. Unquote. The law is God's first word, but the gospel is God's final word. The gospel alone is the power of God unto salvation, which means that the law forces us to face our sin, but only the gospel can forgive us our sin. The law accuses us while the gospel acquits us. The law exposes, but only the gospel exonerates. The law may curtail bad behavior, but only grace can transform the heart. The law, to paraphrase Luther, is a divinely sent Hercules sent to attack and kill the monster of self-righteousness, a monster that continues to harass the, the, harass the redeemed. Christians, in other words, need the law to regularly reveal that we are worse off than we think. We need to be reminded that there is something to be pardoned, even on our best, even our best works and proudest achievements. By the way, those can send us to hell. But then, once we are recrushed by the law, we need to be reminded, in the words of that old hymn, that, quote, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. We need to hear that the sins we cannot forget, God cannot remember. Or, as another old hymn puts it, Though the accuser roar of ills that I have done, I know them well, and thousands more. Jehovah findeth none. 
we need to hear over and over that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that nothing can separate us from God's love, and that Christians live their lives under a banner that reads, It is finished. Christians who talk about grace are thought to have a low view of God's law. Correspondingly, those with a high view of the law are thought to be legalists. But the late Presbyterian theologian J. Gresham Machen says, This gets the matter backwards. A low view of the law always produces legalism. A high view of the law makes a person a seeker after God's grace. This is because a low view of the law encourages us to conclude that we can keep it. The bar is low enough for us to jump over. A low view of the law makes us think that its standards are attainable, its goals reachable, its demands are doable. A high view of the law, however, demolishes all such confidence. It leaves us no room for supposing that God supplies helpful tips for practical living rather than demanding absolute perfection. We'll always be suspicious of unconditional grace as long as we think our own moral efforts are sufficient. Only an inflexible picture of what God demands reveals the depth of our ongoing need for the gospel. This means that contrary to what some Christians would have you believe, the biggest problem facing the church today is not cheap grace, but cheap law. The idea that God accepts anything less than the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Essayist John Dink writes, Cheap law weakens God's demand for perfection, and in so doing breathes life into the old creature and his quest for a righteousness of his own making. Cheap law tells us that we've fallen, but there's good news that you can get back up again. Therein lies the great heresy of cheap law. It is a false gospel, and it cheapens, no, it nullifies God's grace. Only when we see that the way to God's law is absolutely inflexible, we will see that God's grace is absolutely indispensable. A high view of the law reminds us that God accepts us on the basis of Christ's perfection, not our progress. It reminds us then to seek deliverance only in the gospel. In other words, a high view of the law produces a high view of grace. A low view of the law produces a low view of grace. God's good law reveals our desperation. God's good gospel reveals our deliverer. We are in constant need of hearing both. Before God's holy law and our own personalized laws, we are judged and rightly found wanting. I am not the follower of Christ that I ought to be, nor am I the father, husband, pastor, or friend that I should be. I wish I could say I do everything for God's glory, but I can't, neither can you. What I can say is that Jesus' blood covers all of my efforts to glorify myself. I wish I could say Jesus fully satisfies me. I can't. Neither can you. What I can say is that Jesus fully satisfied God for me. If law were the one word of God, if, if... If law were the one word of God, like the only word of God, if the Bible were basically a book of instructions, we would all be doomed. Jesus announced that he came not to abolish the law, but but to fulfill it. Jesus fulfilled all of God's holy conditions so that our relationship to him could be wholly unconditional. The primary message of the Bible then is this, the lawmaker became the law keeper and died for me, the law breaker.
The Bible is one long story of God meeting our rebellion with His rescue, our sin with His salvation, our guilt with His grace. The overwhelming focus of the Bible is not the work of the redeemed, but the work of the Redeemer. Which means that the Bible is not first a recipe book for Christian living, but a revelation book of Jesus, who is the answer to our un-Christian living. Great article. Great article. I have to say just amen and amen. Our last good article for this first hour that's kind of a goofy free zone, if you would, uh, comes from Albert Muller's website. The name of the article is Preaching with Authority, Three Characteristics of Expository Preaching. Dr. Muller writes, Authentic expository preaching is marked by three distinct characteristics, authority, reverence, and centrality. Expository preaching is authoritative because it stands upon the very authority of the Bible as the Word of God. Such preaching requires and reinforces a sense of reverent expectation on the part of God's people. Finally, expository preaching demands the central place in Christian worship and is respected as the event through which the living God speaks to his people. A keen analysis of our contemporary age comes from sociologist Richard Sennett of New York University. Sennett notes that in times past, a major anxiety of most persons was loss of governing authority. Now, the tables have been turned, and modern persons are anxious about any authority over them. Quote, we have come to fear the influence of authority as a threat to our liberties in the family and in the society at large, end quote. If previous generations feared the absence of authority, today we see a fear of authority when it exists. Some homileticians suggest that preachers should simply embrace this new worldview and surrender any claim to an authoritative message. Those who have lost confidence in the authority of the Bible as the Word of God are left with little to say and no authority for their message. Fred Craddock, among the most influential figures in recent, uh, recent homiletical thought, famously describes today's preacher as, quote, uh, one without authority, end quote. His portrait of the preacher's predicament is haunting, quote, The old thunderbolts rust in the attic while the minister tries to lead his people through the morass of relativities and proximate possibilities. No longer can the preacher presuppose the general recognition of his authority as a clergyman or the authority of his institution, or the authority of Scripture, end quote. Credock argues, summarizing the predicament of the postmodern preacher, he relates that the preacher, quote, seriously asks himself whether he should continue to serve up monologue in a dialogue world. Now, the obvious question to pose to Craddock's analysis is this. If we have no authoritative message, well, then why preach? Without authority, the preacher and the congregation are involved in a massive waste of precious time. The very idea that preaching can be transformed into a dialogue between the pulpit and the pew indicates the confusion of our era. Contrasted to this uh, is the note of authority found in all true expository preaching. As Martin Lloyd-Jones notes, any study of church history, and particularly any study of the great periods of revival or reawakening, demonstrates above everything else just this one fact, that the Christian church during all such periods has spoken with authority. The great characteristic of all revivals has been the authority of the preacher. There seemed to be something new, extra, and irresistible in what he declared on behalf of God. The preacher dares to speak on behalf of God. He stands in the pulpit as a steward of the mysteries of God and declares the truth of God's word, proclaims the power of that word, and applies the word to life. This 
is the uh, uh, immediately audacious act. No one should even contemplate such an endeavor without absolute confidence in a divine call to preach and in the unblemished authority of the scriptures. In the final analysis, the ultimate authority for preaching is the authority of the Bible as the word of God. Without this authority, the preacher stands naked and silent before the congregation and the watching world. If the Bible is not the word of God, the preacher is involved in an act of self-delusion or professional pretension. Standing on the authority of Scripture, the preacher declares a truth received, not a message invented. The teaching office is not an advisory role based on religious expertise, but a prophetic function whereby God speaks to his people. Authentic expository preaching is also marked by reverence. The congregation that gathered before Ezra and the other preachers demonstrated a love and reverence for the word of God in Nehemiah 8. When the book was read, the people stood up. This act of standing reveals the heart of the people and their sense of expectation as the word was read and preached. Expository preaching requires an attitude of reverence on the part of the congregation. Preaching is not a dialogue, but it does involve at least two parties, the preacher and the congregation. The congregation's role in the preaching event is to hear, to receive, and obey the word of God. In so doing, the church demonstrates reverence for the preaching and the teaching of the Bible and understands that the sermon that the sermon brings the word of Christ near to the congregation. This is true worship. Lacking reverence for the word of God, many congregations are caught in fanatic in the in the frenat, uh, frantic quest for significance in worship. Christians leave worship services asking each other, "Did you get anything out of that?" Churches produce surveys to measure expectations for worship. Would you like more music? What kind? How much drama? Is our preacher, preacher sufficiently creative? Expository preaching demands a very different set of questions. Will I obey the word of God? How must my thinking be realigned by scripture? How must I change my behavior to be fully obedient to the word? These questions reveal submission to the authority of God and reverence for the Bible as his word. Likewise, the preacher must demonstrate his own reverence for God's word by dealing truthfully and responsibly with the text. He must not be flippant or casual, much less, uh, much less dismissive or disrespectful. Of this, we can be certain no congregation will revere the Bible more than the preacher does. If expository preaching is authoritative and if it demands reverence, it must also be at the center of Christian worship. Worship properly directed to the honor and the glory of God will find its center in the reading and the preaching of the Word of God. Expository preaching cannot be assigned to support to a supporting role in the act of worship. It must be the central role. In the course of the Reformation, Luther's driving purpose was to restore preaching to its proper place in Christian worship. Referring to the incident between Mar Mar Mary and Martha in Luke 10, Luther reminded his congregation and students that Jesus Christ declared that, quote, only one thing is necessary, the preaching of the word. Therefore, Luther's central concern was to reform worship in the churches by reestablishing there the centrality of the reading and the preaching of the word. That same reformation is needed in American evangelicalism today. Expository preaching must once again be central to the life of the church and central to the Christian worship. In the end, the church will not be judged by its Lord for the quality of its music, but for the faithfulness of its preaching. When today's evangelicals seek casually of the distinction between worship and preaching, meaning that the church will enjoy an offering of music before adding on a bit of preaching— 
They betray their misunderstanding of both worship and the act of preaching. Worship is not something we do before we settle down for the word of God. It is the act through which the people of God direct all of their attentiveness to the one true and living God who speaks to them and receives their praises. God is most beautifully praised when his people hear his word, love his word, obey his word. As in the Reformation, the most important corrective to our corruption of worship and, and defense against consumerist demands of the day is to rightly return to expository preaching and the public reading of God's word to primacy and centrality in worship. Only then will the missing jewel be truly rediscovered. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. The exact opposite kind of sermon that Dr. Muller was trying to describe there. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. Because all the letters of the Bible are red letters, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Yeah! Hooray! That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, Let's see what we have here. Oh, yay! I've always wanted... It's a Star Trek uniform! But it's red. What are you trying to say? It was the only colored wool fabric I had. (laughs) Try it on! It's, uh, really itchy. Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about ThinkGeek. At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. 
Okay, we're back. Fighting for the face. Hour number two. Yeah, we're going to hear the exact opposite of the type of preaching that um, Dr. Mueller was um, promoting. But we got to do this right. So uh, here we go. I know you're excited. The good, the bad, and uh, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon, if you can really even call it that, comes to us via Faith Church St. Louis. Nicole Crank presiding. The name of this message is entitled Just Dance. And I don't think there's reverence in it. I don't think there's uh, right handling of God's word. In fact, quite the opposite. This is the example of what not to do in preaching. In fact, I'm not even going to waste any more time. I'm just going to get right into it. Let me go ahead and kill the music without any further ado. Here's Nicole Crank and Just Dance. Well, I got up this morning, and Friday is supposed to be my day off. So I planned to have this breakfast lunch with my family because my son didn't have to be at school at school until two o'clock and I was going to be with my husband and we pulled my daughter out of school for this special lunch. My phone is out. I've got my earpiece and I've got my computer on the table in the restaurant reviewing some stuff. I'm like this. And they're like, Hey mom, I'm like, yeah, just a minute. It's my day off. So it starts like that. That's not so bad. I end up Stuck in that kind of little meeting for an hour. That's not that big of a deal. So I go home and I'm going to prepare for my message. And you see, I guess it got cold last week and a pipe bust inside the wall of our house. And we didn't necessarily know it right away. And it came and it flooded all inside the walls and all the carpeting. And so they had to rip up all the carpeting and rip the walls out of our house and rip all the stuff out of the room. So my house looks like a disaster area. But that's okay because I'm just, I'm I'm going like this as I'm walking through those rooms. I get down, I sit down. And I'm going to study and my phone rings and I pick up my phone and it's my son. He is 22 and he's at baseball practice and he says, Hey mom. I said, yeah. He said, don't freak out. Don't you love it when they start with don't freak out? I'm like, okay, well, no commitments. What are you going to hit me with? And he said, I'm on my way to Barnes Jewish Christian hospital. I'm going to be okay. I twisted my ankle on the mound. They call it a Jones fracture. They're pretty sure I've broken my ankle. My coach is in the car with me. I just wanted to let you know where I'm at. I said, I am your mama. It is my sworn duty from birth to flee wherever I am at this moment and come be by your side. He's like, mom, I said, I got this. (laughs) I understand that he is 22 years old, six foot three, 220 pounds and can squash me like a bug but I'm still your mama. (laughs) Well, he talked me out of going. So I called David and I said, Dave, can you get a hold of him? Make sure everything is okay. So that goes by the wayside. And then we have this little ice storm. No big deal, right? We've been planning this for months. Oh, my son is back there with his crutches. Hey, baby. (laughs) Yeah, I totally got busted. Did I redeem myself at all? Then we have this little ice storm and all you wonderful people are crazy. 
to brave this weather and come out. And you know what? I know my Facebook has been lighting up for hours about all the people who wanted to come and you guys are watching online. So I'm going to say one, two, three, and we're going to say, Hey, to all the people online. Ready? One, two, three. Hey, we are. Uh, Hey. Yeah. Um, man. I'm not hearing any reverence. I'm not hearing God's word rightly hand. Have we heard God's word yet? So glad you're with us and that you were able to join us this way. But I had all these things that I had to accomplish. I had to be here by 730 and I had to have a message. And my son's here and the app's busted and the weather's bad and the dog. Oh, yeah, about that. I have a two-pound dog and she's paper trained. Since the house is torn apart, we weren't able to put the little blockade up to keep her in the kitchen. And she got confused between the carpet and a little paper that she's used to using. And I did not notice at all until I stepped in it this afternoon. That's just the icing on the cake, right? Yeah, thanks for sharing that during a sermon. So how do we do it? How do we do it? How do we enjoy life at the pace that we have going on? Because on top of that, there are husband pressures and financial pressures and all these other things that are going on. How do we enjoy life like this? How do we enjoy life? That's the goal of this sermon is to teach us how to enjoy life. Okay. Is it possible to enjoy life? Is it possible to feel like dancing when... I'm not sure that there's anything to dance about on any given day. Well, you know, just like God, he understands that we would feel this way. So he addresses it in the Bible. And if So God understands that I don't feel like dancing and he decided to address the fact that I don't feel like dancing in the Bible. Are, are you sure about this? If you do not know this scripture, I would get out your pen, get out your iPad, get out your phone, text somebody this scripture, because this is one you were going to want in your books because you're going to have a day like I had today. And John 10, 10 is going to mean volumes to you in that moment. And John 10, 10. Yeah, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Taken out of context, by the way. If you want to understand the context of John 10, 10, it actually re- requires you to apply the three rules for sound biblical exegesis, which are context context and context and in order to understand the context of john chapter 10 verse 10 you have to go all the way back to john chapter 9 verse 1 let me teach it to you john chapter 9 verse 1 as jesus passed by he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him rabbi who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed, and he came back seeing. Now, get that. This man hasn't seen Jesus to this point because Jesus made mud and then put it on his eyes and sent him to a pool to wash off the mud, and when he washed off the mud, he could see. Okay, So he hasn't seen Jesus up to this point. So then the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some say, Well, it is he. Others said, No, But it's somebody that looks like him. And he kept saying, no, I am the man. So they said to him, well, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, 
The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes, and he said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and I washed, and I received my sight. And they said to him, Well, where is he? He said, I, I don't know. And so they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Now some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, Well, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And so there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, Well, he's a prophet. And the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked him, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how, but how he now sees, we don't know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Messiah, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age. You ask him. So, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I don't know. The one thing I do know, though, is that I was blind, and now I see. So they said to him, What did he do? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, well, I've already told you, and you would not listen. Why do you not? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? So they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And so the man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And so they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And so they cast him out. Notice the persecution this poor man has received as a result of being healed by Jesus. And what a great job he's done of defending and proclaiming Christ in the midst of that persecution. Now remember, he still hasn't seen Jesus. So Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, well, who is he, sir, so that I might believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped Jesus. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Now some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, 
you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. Now notice, Jesus here is talking to the Pharisees who are pretty much spying on him, following this man who had been healed and given his sight. So Jesus said again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. He's talking about the Pharisees. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, to kill and destroy. I came so that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd Pharisees. He who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. For I have sheep of, uh, I have other sheep that are not of this fold and I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. So when you put that all together, what's going on here? In that section in John 10, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees and calling them hirelings, false teachers, those who don't care for the sheep. And this is in the context of them reviling a man who has just been miraculously given his sight by Jesus. So now that you understand what this passage is about, brace yourself, because here's what Nicole Crank thinks it's about. And John 10, 10 says, the thief comes only. Well, let's stop right there. There's a thief? You know, if I knew there was a thief in my house, I probably shouldn't say this out loud at a women's meeting because a lot of you ladies aren't going to like this. But after the life I've had, I decided that I would like to have a conceal and carry permit because I decided some of the things that happened in my past ain't happening in my future, even if I got to make them stop. That's just my prerogative and you're welcome to disagree with it. But if there was a thief in my house and he was going to hurt my family, take my stuff, my joy, my peace, my long suffering, I would do something about it. And the Bible says there is a thief. So we got to do something about that, ladies. You going to let them take your stuff? Okay. Or two people said, no. Uh-uh, no way. You did not scare, convince me, or him. So let's try that again. I know you got toot. I've seen it before when you were talking about that man who did you wrong. Oh, yeah. Go ahead and give me that. So there is a thief. And are you going to let him come take your stuff? That's what I'm talking about. Nuh-uh. Shut up. But it is true. There is a thief, and the thief is the enemy in the Bible. 
the devil, the wicked one, the one who comes to try and ruin our good times. The devil. This is not about the devil coming to ruin your good times and keep you from having a happy life. Unbelievable. Who comes to try and ruin our good times? Absolutely. That's what it says next in this scripture. It says, the thief comes only. Hasn't she read that scripture that said that women are not to teach men in the church, have authority over and to teach? He's got a singular job. You know what that singular job is? To steal, to kill, and to destroy. Destroy what? Still kill and destroy. What's he going to destroy? He's going to destroy the world. He's going to destroy my house. He's going to destroy, you know, the weather. What's he going to destroy? Well, the next part of the scripture really clues us into that because Jesus addresses it. And he says, I, this is actually Jesus talking. He says, I have come that you may have and enjoy life. So then what did the devil, the enemy, the evil one, the thief, what did he come to destroy? He came to destroy your life. But Jesus came. Okay. If we had a competition, like a tug of war and we put the devil on one side and we put Jesus on the other side, who you think is bigger? Jesus. Who you think is going to win the tug of war? Jesus. But do you know in that tug of war, sometimes, sometimes we get pulling on the enemy side of the rope we get tugging on the wrong side. We get to thinking, life is so bad. Oh, that's right. It is so bad. Oh, yeah. Something else I forgot to tell you all about. They gave me a call today and they said, hey, at the church, one of the heating units broke down. Not a big deal. It's just going to be $17,000. I said, oh, yeah, that's not in the budget. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going to find that one. So they said, when they went to say the church, the person who called me with that, they said, it's the money trap again. And I said, do not ever call our building, which is our church, the money trap. Because if God is true and he says that we have what we say, like he said, let there be light. And there was light. If you say that our church building is a money trap, then it's going to be a money trap. We're tugging on the enemy side of the rope, making this happen. And that's not what we want to happen. No, our church is blessed. It's highly favored. Our heating units last longer than anybody else's heating units. But it doesn't look like the heating units are lasting long today. The heating unit just broke down. I mean, how are we going to fix your heating unit? Oh, man, that hurts to listen to. Ah, This isn't preaching. Oh, that sounds like the thief coming to destroy my joy in my life. No, we're not going to get worried about it. We're going to tell, we're going to go to Jesus and say, God, your house has a problem, sir. And I'm sure your checkbook is big enough to handle it. So Lord Jesus, we have a heating unit in your house that needs to be fixed. And I'm just going to give it up to you because I don't have $17,000 in my checking account that I can write for that just at this moment. So I just thought I would let you know about it, sir. And just declare with my mouth, your word, that all our needs are met according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus, sir. In Jesus name. Amen. Because God's got it. But we get all freaked out about life and we allow the enemy to steal our joy, to destroy our joy, to pull us down. There were so many things today. How many of you had at least three different things today that could have stolen your joy had you let it? And maybe you even did, did, did let it steal your joy. You mean like the sermon? <laughs> really close to stealing my joy. Well, Jesus not only wants us to have life, he wants us to have and enjoy life. 
And where's the rest of that scripture? Go ahead and put the rest of that scripture up there. It says, in abundance to the full and until it overflows. And I thought... And she has no clue what the context of this passage is, so everything she's saying about it is utter nonsense. I thought, what is it that makes somebody dance? You ever watch that show, Deal or No Deal? When they got the last two cases and the $100,000 is on the line. I can win $100,000 or I can win $10. What are we going to do? Deal or no deal? Deal or no deal? And everybody's going, no deal, no deal, no deal. So he's like, no deal. Open the case. And they say, and we'll be right back after these messages. <laughs> but they come back. They open the case. They win $100,000. And what do they do? Oh, yeah, yeah. They dance for joy. Or who's ever seen The Price is Right? And they get on, and they spin the wheel, and they get win the game, and they said, and you have won a new car! Dun, 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 dun. And they jump up and down, and they almost killed Bob Barker. That They had to put Drew Carey on. Because somebody heard him from winning a new car. But when people are full and overflowing with joy, they dance because they can't help it, and that's what we're supposed to do in life. We are supposed to dance. Because we're supposed to be so full of joy that we're overflowing. Like the pipes in my house right now. Am I sinning if I don't want to dance? I don't even like dancing. Onto my carpets that my dog has pottied on. That I stepped in with my feet that are working but my son's ankle that got broke. Oh yeah, see the reason why you stepped in your dog's potty is because that was the enemy coming to steal, kill, and destroy your happiness. <sighs> right? So see how that goes? Oh, just ripping that joy down and ripping that joy down and ripping that joy down. But we got to learn how to be ready to dance. Because God sets up proper and right times for us to dance. Really? Who knew? You know, I bought these shoes. I don't know if you watch me on Facebook or Twitter, if, if we're friends or not. But if we're not, you should look me up. Until we had that inclement weather out there and I put these shoes on. I intended to wear these shoes. But you know what? These shoes really need to be worn, right? Because you, there's certain times to wear pretty shoes. I got these at Charlotte Roos. Guess how much I paid? $15. That's right. Charlotte Roos. I love that store. Really? You, this, this is what you're talking about during a sermon. But there are certain times that you know you're going to dance. You ever been to a wedding? You go, you pick out your outfit ahead of time. It is an occasion to dress up and you are ready. And you get out your cute shoes to go with your cute outfit because that is just the way it is supposed to go. And you put them on and you strut around and you look great at the wedding. And by the time you get in the car to go to the reception, you take your shoes off in the car because they hurt. Right? These shoes are cute, but they cheap. They don't feel good. So this outfit already looks better, doesn't it? $15 can make such a difference. I'm enjoying these shoes. Oh, I like them. They are such cute shoes. But then you get to the reception and your feet are hurting. So you just, you brave it. You walk like this, like you all right, but you're kind of cool. And you make it and you get to your chair at the reception and you sit down and you say, oh, I'll be all right. I'm just going to stay here. And then they play a song that everybody dances to. Yeah, I, I don't know what this is. You can see it. It's a nice trick. And we go and we sit down. 
and we miss out on the whole thing. We miss out on the whole cotton-picking thing for some self-inflicted pain. That's no fun. That's the thief coming to steal our joy, and we're pulling on his side at the tug of war. So let me see if I got this right. If I go to a wedding and I don't want to dance, that's because the devil has influenced me, and I'm doing the wrong thing. Really? Tug of war rope. Because there are people in life with real problems. And maybe... We're one of the people with the real problems right now. Yeah, you know, if you don't want to dance, you really have a problem. But maybe we've got some self-inflicted pain going on, too, with our cute Jews. There are people in the Bible with self, with, that are born into problems. There are people in life that have problems that are not their fault. Okay, you, you know that every human being, according to Scripture, is born dead in trespasses and sins and heading to hell and that Christ died for our sins and is calling everybody to repent of their sin and wickedness and trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins so that they can be saved. You, you familiar with these concepts? And the Bible talks about a guy like that in 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel 4, 4, it talks about, you heard of King Saul and David and David and Goliath. Saul had a son that was best friends with David. His name was Jonathan. And Jonathan had a son and his son was five years old. And he had a terrible day. And in 2 Samuel 4, 4, it says that the information came down to the child's nurse that his grandfather Saul and his father Jonathan had been killed. And the nurse found out about it. And she got so scared that she was going to be killed too that she picked up Mephibosheth at five years old. He's not a little baby. He's five years old. She picks him up and she starts running and she starts running so hard. She drops him and he is crippled. Both of his feet are crushed. How hard do you have to drop somebody or trample somebody to cripple them? That's a bad day. When you lose your granddaddy and your daddy and you become crippled for life. Oh, oh, I agree. That would be a bad day. Um, it must have been the devil to come, coming to steal, kill, and destroy. And all the same day. So he loses the palace. He loses his home. He loses his family. He loses his health. He has real problems. And he's lame. How is he supposed to dance? Well, some years go by. Oh, that's just terrible. I mean, poor Mephibosheth, he was never able to dance again from age five. Really? This is a sermon? And in 2 Samuel 9, it says that the king asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? There is a difference in these cute shoes and me deciding that I want to wear these cute shoes to a wedding. And me having a real problem with dancing because of these cute shoes. Dear Lord Jesus, forgive me for what I'm about to do. I know it is wrong and it should be illegal in all 50 states. Phil, would you help me out here? Phil is, Phil is newly married. Him and Angie got married in July. He, uh, you want to show off for your new wife, right? Go ahead and bust that on the stage or Hulk Hogan it. Oh, there you go. That's it. That's what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Everybody go, Phil, 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 Phil. Oh, that's it. That's perfect. Oh, there we go. Lord, forgive me for I know not what I do. 
That is just wrong. (laughs) I love it when the congregation prays for you. So Mephibosheth is not living a life in uncomfortable shoes that he put on. Mephibosheth. So, So she put on uncomfortable shoes. living life like this and he's trying to have joy and he's trying to dance but when they turn the electric slide up at any of the weddings what on earth is this sermon illustration this is ridiculous And going through life with real wounds and still looking for a reason to dance. Uh, really, where in second <laughs> – this, this is so ridiculous. Where in Second Samuel does it talk about Mephibosheth still looking for the opportunity to dance? But do you know every miracle that ever happened in my life, and there are several of them, only happened at a time and a place when I could not do for myself. Only God could have done the thing. Yeah, like dying on the cross for your sins while you were yet a sinner. That's the miracle I'd point to. Only God could have done it. Only God could have taken a report of stage four cervical cancer and made it to where nine years later, I still have zero report of any cervical cancer. Only God can do that. Only God could be in a situation where my ex-husband had a gun on me and a gun on himself and he was totally high on crack cocaine and he decided not to pull the trigger. Only God can surround you and protect you in a time like that. Only God can protect you when you're having a baby and all of a sudden they realize you've been bleeding internally and they rush everybody out of the room and they start packing you full of packing things, trying to make the bleeding stop that they didn't even know was happening. Only God can make you survive through a time like that. Only God can do these things. So if you're in a situation right now, like Mephibosheth was, and it looks like nothing good can happen, guess what? You are in the perfect position to let God show out and you can't take any of the credit for it. That's the best you got, huh? Wow. Pretty lame. What a great place to be. Mishvibosheth was right there. And in 2 Samuel 9, he gets a phone call from the king. The king who you would think would want to kill him because he was part of the prior regime's family. And so he calls Mephibosheth to the throne and Mephibosheth gets carried to the throne and he bows down before him. And he says, oh, my king, I am your servant. I will serve you. And David says, whoa, 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 Mephibosheth, I'm not going to hurt you. You've got the wrong idea. You see, me and your daddy were best friends. And I swore to your daddy that I was going to take care of his family. And that means I've sworn to you that I'm going to take care of you the rest of the days of your life. Now, Mephibosheth was living in a land called Lodabar. Don't make much sense, right? Lodabar. Who cares about Lodabar? You could equip, equate Lodabar to East St. Louis. Lodabar means parched. 
pastures. It means a bad place to start a business. It, it was a place where you would put the seed in the ground and nothing would grow because it was so dry. They gave the little crippled guy who could not fend for himself. They put him out there in a place where he couldn't even grow crops. And that is what he was coming from. He was coming from a place of no hope. Finances crippled. His body was crippled. His emotions were crippled. His family was taken. He is coming from an area where he doesn't have hope in any situation, but God came along and they told him, you will be eating at the King's table for the rest of your life. Matter of fact, all the land that was your dad. No way. Wow. I wonder what it means. Your daddies and your granddaddies. I'm giving it to you. You are getting the good land and you don't even have to eat from the good land. All you have to eat from is my table. That sounds like God's grace to me. I bet I could easily tie that to the cross of Christ if I needed to. Can you? That, you can just pass that on for an inheritance to your children and your children's children because God is so good. And if you believe it, would you give him a hand clap of praise? <laughs> Woo! And I'm going to close with this last story. <laughs> I'm so glad we're at the end of the sermon already. <laughs> I didn't know if I was going to be able to make it this far. It's hard. It is hard When you are in the middle of needing a healing in your body and a healing in your finances and a healing in your emotions and there's wrong stuff going on around you, it's hard in that place. And sometimes that place seems to last for a long time. Matter of fact, there was a pool named Bethesda in John 5. And there was a guy like Mephibosheth, he needed a healing. And he was laying by the pool Because the waters would stir in the pool, and they say it was the angel. Now, I'm not going to go and teach this entire John 5 passage. I just did John 9 and 10, and I am, like, itching to get out of this sermon review. But go and read John 5 in the story of the healing of this this beggar, okay? And read the whole story, because you'll see that after Jesus heals him, this guy rats on Jesus. I mean, just totally turns on him and turns him into the authorities. It's an interesting story. Angels that troubled the waters. And if the water started to move, if you were the first one in the water, you got healed. Miracle of God. But this man, he couldn't move himself. He was lame. So Jesus comes walking along. And everybody always thinks that Jesus was, oh, so sweet. But sometimes Jesus will ask you hard questions. And when Jesus saw him laid out by the pool, because he was there for 38 years, I'm 39 years old. He was laying there almost my whole life. Have you been any one place for your whole life? And you're 38. He laid by that pool for 38 years and Jesus came up to him and he asked him a hard question. He said, do you even want to get well? Wow. Jesus, that is kind of snappy. I mean, really? You're going to walk up to a lame man trying to get healed and ask him a question like, do you want to get well? And so the lame man did what most of us do when we're in a hard place. He whined. You see, my life is so hard. And the water's stirred. I don't have anybody to put me in the pool. And so when somebody else gets in the pool before me, and it's not my fault that I'm not healed, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. But it's hard. I want in, but nobody will put me in. <sighs> this is hard to listen to. Now, apparently they started this happy music a little too early um, for Nicole. 
crush me. This is so convoluted. That's the truth. We whine about it. Anybody in here ever whined? Anybody ever ask you, would you like some cheese with that wine? Mm-hmm. We whine about it. And here was Jesus' attitude. So don't get mad at me when I say it, because it was Jesus. You just take it up with him later in your prayer time. Jesus said, get up. Take your bedroll and walk. That is some bold words to say to a lame man. Um, that's because he's God in human flesh and he can tell things, people to get up and walk even if they're lame. It's not just boldness. He has authority to do so. But you know what that man did? He said, all right. And he got up and he collected his bedroll and he got up and he walked and he started walking out of there. Yeah, and read the rest of the story. And then he goes and rats on Jesus when the uh, Pharisees say, Hey, you can't pick up your mat. It's the Sabbath. You gotta, who, who told you to do that? And he, they, he totally rats on Jesus. And, you, and Jesus ends up finding him and telling him to you know, go and sin no more or something worse might happen to him. You know, something like that. And you know what? He didn't have a limp. He didn't even have a broken shoe. He just started walking out of there. And here's my point to you. If you are laying by a pool waiting for something good to happen in your life because nothing good has happened, if you're stuck there for 38 years, don't wait for Jesus to walk by. I will be his mouthpiece right now and read you the words that he said. But, honey, if you are sitting there and you can't dance, you at least got to wiggle it a little bit. You know what I'm Really? The, the scriptures don't say anything about it. I, if I can't dance, I need to wiggle it a little bit. You know what I'm saying? So you're down for the count. Your finances stink. You ain't got nothing good going on. But you can, you can wiggle it just a little bit. Oh, my. Yeah, and that was literally the end of the sermon. Thank God. I don't think I could have made it <laughs> any farther. I mean, I've <laughs> listened to that too many times. Yeah, that's what passes as preaching nowadays quite the opposite of what albert muller described don't you think all right we're at the end of another edition of fighting for the faith if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of fighting for the faith you can do so my email address is talkback at fighting for the or you can subscribe on facebook it's facebook.com forward slash pirate christian or follow me on twitter my name there at pirate christian Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.